The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Thank you for letting me speak to you today. Can I get a glass of water or something? Thanks. It's been three and a half years since I uh, preached here last time. I can't believe it's been that long. The um, thing I remember about that sermon is that it seemed like it went about ten minutes. Not because it was a great sermon, but I think it literally went ten minutes. And I do believe that that is solely responsible for you voting me Final Life Preacher of the Year that that year. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. This is an awesome passage. And Father, I pray that uh, for your Holy Spirit... I pray that uh, I will be faithful to this passage, that truth will come out, and that we pray, Lord, that your purposes will be worked out in the hearing of your word. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. I became a Christian a little over 20 years ago, about 22 years. That's not even half my life. I was raised in what would be considered a Christian home, so that might be surprising to some people. But over these 20 years, as well as about 22 years ago, I came to saving uh, knowledge of Jesus Christ. And over these 20 years, my faith has grown. I love his word, and I regularly read it, and I love to talk about it. I love his people, enjoy spending time with them, especially the people, his people here, you know, preacher of the year, remember? I will talk about Jesus to whoever wants to hear about him, and even sometimes when they don't. And I can honestly say that I love Jesus. However, sometimes I do get distracted. I commit sin, sins that I have not put to death. My spirit and my flesh go to war with each other, and my flesh comes away with a resounding victory. Sins affect, sin has affected my relationships through my selfishness and self-centeredness. Uh, I see the, the effects of my relationships sometimes. And sometimes I, I look and I see the effects of it and I feel like a, a failure. I feel inadequate. Many times in my life I felt like a failure as a husband or a father. <clears throat> I find that I don't measure up to my own expectations and much less God's. And I end up wondering, how could a good, righteous, and holy God even love me? I begin to think, excuse me, irrationally. May I wallow in self-pity for a while, I feel depressed, I'll begin to worry about things, and worry, which is a sin in and of itself, leads to other sins. I find myself in the depths, bogged down by my guilt. The reason I feel this way is because I forget who I am in Christ. In fact, the very fact that I sin means I forgot who I am in Christ. I forget my identity in him. I begin to put hope in other things. I lose my joy. I try to find satisfaction in other things. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. In fact, I'm not going to ask the question because I know if you're a Christian, you've been there probably many times. Maybe you're there now. 
We love God, we love Jesus, but either through sin or circumstances, we find ourselves forgetting him or, or adding to him or finding satisfaction in other things. We turn away from the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus and rely on other things to try to cope with our situation. This problem is not unique. It's not new. One of the earliest churches in the New Testament got distracted. Faithful believers in the church of Colossae, they got distracted. They also were turning away from the gospel and from the sufficiency of Jesus. We're going to take a look at a portion of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And a man named Epaphras, we see him in verse 7 of chapter 1, we believe he's either a, a pastor or one of the founders of the church. We see in verse 7 that uh, just as you learned it from Epaphras, he's talking about the gospel. Paul is saying you learned the gospel from Epaphras, and it's Epaphras who's visiting him in prison. And he visits Paul and brings good news to him about their faith. And the letter is, so many of Paul's letters start, um, start out with, they start out with encouragement. Well, it starts out with thankfulness, thanksgiving to God for them. And then it's, and it launches into encouragement. And it also, he also tells people, he prays for them. Paul loves the people of God, and he takes every opportunity to convey that love to them. He's encouraged by their faith and encourages them to remain steadfast. In verse, starting in verse 11, he prays that they will remain steadfast. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. And he reminds them that they were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. But Paphras also brings disturbing news about their faith. He tells Paul that false teaching has been entering into the church at Colossae, and the people are starting to turn from the gospel. Now, something is distracting the Colossians from their faith. We're not quite sure exactly what it is or many guesses. Uh, commentators seem pretty sure about it. But whatever it was, I mean, chapter 2 offers some clues when Paul mentions submitting to regulations and asceticism. And asceticism is extreme self-denial and austerity. A lot of times it's like you know, flogging yourself or cutting yourself. And, and it mentions worship of angels. Whatever this teaching was, is tempting to rob Jesus of his glory. It was turning them from faith, causing them to stray from the gospel. Whatever it was, is more likely a Christian elements to it, which is very, very dangerous. You see this in some teachings today. It has an appearance of holiness and spirituality, which is very seductive. And its most dangerous error is the attempt to obscure the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's a doctrine of God and salvation that clouds the divinity, superiority, and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, how does Paul respond to the Colossians' distraction away from the sufficiency of Jesus? Well, he reminds them. He proclaims the full divinity of Jesus. He proclaims his preeminence as king and his perfect work as a savior. We're going to take a look at the most important personality to ever walk the face of the earth. We're going to look at the essence of what we believe, the foundation of our faith. This is the dividing line, the very battleground over which we fight with other belief systems, other philosophies, other religions, other isms. 
And Paul is going to proclaim the absolute supremacy of our Redeemer and remind us of his gospel. So we're going to see three things in our text. Divinity of Jesus Christ, Jesus is God, his preeminence as king, and his perfect work as a savior. Verse 15 of our text. He is the image of the invisible God. And I'll pause here and take note that God is invisible. First Timothy, the Old Testament, has references and tells us that God is invisible. He cannot be seen. He is a spirit. John 1.18 says that no one has seen God. Old Testament tells us many times if anyone has seen God, they, they die instantly. They'd be annihilated. You just cease to exist. You know, the enemies of God would love that to be the case, but we'll talk about that some other time. But yet, God has become visible. And Christ has made God visible. The Greek word used for image, and I'm not going to use this to share, show me that I'm you know, knowledgeable in Greek because I'm not. I don't even know enough to be dangerous. I wish I did. But the Greek word is icon. An icon simply means, is, you know, I, I use this word to just illustrate, kind of illustrate what Jesus means or what they mean, what Paul means by image. His image is the likeness or a picture of what the Father is. And part of Jesus' mission is to reveal to us what Jesus is like. Hebrews 1.3 calls Jesus the exact imprint of God's nature. It's the exact reproduction. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God, yet John 1.14 says, The Word, in the context here, the Word is Jesus. We're talking about Jesus here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you might be thinking, well, what about man? Man is a man created in God's image? I mean, isn't that what Genesis tells us? 1 Corinthians 11:7 says, man is the image and glory of God. So how, what does this mean? How does this differentiate between Jesus and man? Well, man is in the image of God, and we're in the image of God in that we have certain attributes that God has. For instance, we can... For instance, uh, we can feel, we can think, we can decide. We, these are all things that God can do. We can create. Obviously, God can create. We can show compassion, love, hate, patience, kindness, and self-awareness. We can not only think, but we can think about thinking. These are all things that God can do, and, and he has bestowed this upon man and no other creature. But man is not the perfect image of God. God is holy, and we are not. We have sinned. Our image is marred, is severely damaged. And it's only in Christ is God seen in absolute perfection. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1.19, which we'll see a little bit later, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is the image of God in the sense that the nature and being of God are perfectly revealed in him. John 14:8 says, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, If I've been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We reflect the image of God, whereas Jesus is the image of God.
If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. Some would have us to believe that Jesus is not God. Some would have us to believe that he is one of many gods. He was a prophet. Some would have us believe he's a good teacher or just an all-around swell guy. But if God were a man, he would be sinless. And Jesus was. If God were a man, we expect him to have profound influence on people and show incredible wisdom, and Jesus did. If God were a man, we would expect him to perform miracles, and Jesus did. If God were a man, we would expect him uh, to, to love, love perfectly, and Jesus did. He did all these things and more because he is God, and God cannot be known except to Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16 Verse 16, he created all things, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now Paul here is stating the case that for, uh, stating the case for Jesus' dominion over creation. He has dominion over creation because he created it. John 1, 3, going back to John again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He made the universe, which means that he is not a part of the universe. He's not in the universe, but he is outside of the universe. Yet, as we have seen, he has entered into it. All things came to be by him, through him, and for him. And when it says by him, it, it means that uh, it was of or in him. Everything that was created in him. Creation occurred within the sphere of his person and power. It originated in him. And it was through him. He was the agent by which creation came about. We will see later that Christ is the mediator between God and man. And, and here is also the thought that all of life, the entire universe, is being mediated from God through Christ. But due to the sin of man, creation itself is groaning, and Christ is its mediator. And it's for him. The reason all things exist is for Christ. All things exist to serve his will. He is the image of the invisible God and created all things. Verse 17, he is before all things. Here it reiterates the fact that he was before all things in time. He existed before the universe did because he created it. He is not a creation. He is the creator. Verse 17 continues, in him all things hold together. You know, some nights I look up in the sky and, you know, around here if you can see them, I mean, you can see stars. And I mean, I know other places you see lots of stars. And, but even the, you know, the, the little bit we can see here, I mean, you really ponder how big this universe is. I mean, it can be mind-boggling. And, and it's just, you know, all the stars, billions and billions of them, and you realize that the closest star to us, besides our sun, is 25 trillion miles away. That's quite a distance. Quite a distance. And you think about the billions of miles, and they're all about the same distance apart from each other. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I mean, you just have to shake your head and go, God, get back here. And every star moves in its path. 
Because Jesus directed those stars to move. The planets move about their orbits around their stars. They spin on their axis because he commanded them to do so. They don't go flying off on their own because Jesus holds them all together. That's the big stuff. What about the tiniest particles, the atom? No one's even seen an atom. We're guessing as to what an atom even is or what it looks like. But yet we've determined they're made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. They're all spinning around, kind of like little universes. And these remain intact. They bond together to form larger objects. And everything we see here is all the result of you know, atoms coming together and, and forming together. And yet that all happens because he holds them together, because he tells them to. The reason scientists, the, whom I call the priests of the most popular religion in the Western world, the reason they can make amazing discoveries is because Jesus holds it all together. Hypotheses and, and predictions can be made because he holds it all together. Airplanes fly and land people on the moon and bring them back home because Jesus holds it all together. Advances in medicine technology are possible because Christ holds everything together. The reason your very heart beats and your lungs breathe is because Jesus holds everything together and he commands them to do so. I love this passage in Psalm 104. It says, He set the earth on his foundation so that it should be, never be moved. Now, before anyone goes flying on, see, I told you it's not a science book. I don't know anything about science. Yeah, okay, we know. This is, this is poetry here. When being poetic, we can have that kind of license and say these kind of things when we're writing poems. You set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. We're just talking about Noah's flood. He commanded the waters to cover the earth. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. They, they might not again cover the earth. So Jesus commanded the waters to cover the earth and then he commanded them to retreat again. Jesus holds everything together. He is the image of the invisible God. He created all things. He is before all things. And he holds everything together. Verse 16. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, by Christ. I talked about invisible things, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. I, I don't know. We could guess what they are. I mean... You know, it probably has something to do with the false teachings that the Colossians were receiving. We do know in the Bible we read of angels. Ezekiel and Revelation has some pretty wild-sounding creatures in those books. Second Kings mentions chariots of fire. Even Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whatever Paul is referring to, whatever unseen things these are, these supernatural beings or powers, Christ created them, and Christ is their Lord. All things exist to serve his will and bring him glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He created all things, therefore he is before all things. In him all things hold together, therefore he has authority and rule over it. Jesus is God. 
Paul also reminds them of his preeminence as king. His preeminence means that he is superior to or notable above all others. Back to verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Again, someone have us believe that Jesus was created. But the word here, the Greek word, I'm going to show my ignorance Greek again, prototokos. I probably pronounced that incorrectly. Hopefully I will not use it incorrectly. We'll find it used in Colossians 1.18. We'll see it in Romans 8.29, Hebrews 1.6, Revelation 1.15. It can mean either priority in time or supremacy in rank and dignity. Here, in this passage, verse 15, it means both. Christ is before all creation in time. He existed before for creation. He also has absolute authority and rule over it. He is supreme over creation. And we should also see firstborn in, in the ancient sense that uh, the firstborn has all the rights and privileges that is not shared by other offspring. So he is supreme before everyone else. He outranks them all. So the firstborn back then is the father's representative and heir. He, he, the management of the household is, is given to the firstborn. And we see Christ. Christ is the father's representative. He is his heir. And the management of the father's household, all of creation, has been given to Christ. He's also the promised king in the line of David. God promised David and Israel that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And Jesus is in the line of David. Psalm 89, 27, referring to the coming Davidic king, says, And I shall make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus has supremacy over all things. He is Lord over all creation. Jesus, the firstborn of creation. In verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the head of the church. He is its chief, its leader. He guides and governs it. Christ and the church, Christ, I'm sorry, Christ and Christ alone is head of the church. And what is the church? Well, the church is a living organism where the redeemed people of God are joined together. The church is the means by which Jesus carries out his purposes, performs his work. We like to say that we are the hands and feet of God, and, and we are. The church is the hands and feet of God. It's the intimate union between Christ and his people. It is his body. The church is Christ's body. He is the head, and we are the body. And it goes even further than that when Christ calls his church his bride. can't get more, much more intimate than husband and wife. And Jesus considers his church his bride. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And here we see, this is in verse 19, I believe. Here we see firstborn meaning that uh, precedence in time, meaning that he is before all things. And here, the first, he is the first to be resurrected from the dead. He is the first to be resurrected to, from the dead, never to return to death. He conquered death, never to die again. Others have been resurrected, remember Lazarus, but he eventually died again. Jesus returned from the dead and will never return back. 
Because he is the first to rise from the dead, he possesses in himself a, a new and a higher life that, that, his, that his people now share with him because we're united to him. Jesus is preeminent. Paul reminds us that Jesus is God. He reminds us that Jesus is preeminent. He's superior to all things. He also reminds us of his perfect work as a Savior. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross, by blood on his cross, and you who once were alienated and hostile of mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were in rebellion against God, separated from him. We hated God. Now some might take offense to that. But hatred manifests itself in different ways. From outright militant atheism, where you proselytize the non-existence of God, to being ambivalent or agnostic, to being self-righteous, either through the belief that your good will outweigh your bad, or that certain rituals will gain you favor with God, or will please Him, or that you can appease Him by performing sacrifices. To be so steeped in religious tradition that you don't even remember or know who it is you're worshiping. And you spend more time bringing yourself glory than to give glory to the only one who deserves glory. Or maybe you're attracted to some vain philosophy. Our sins and even what today we're calling distractions is hatred of God. It's the forgetting of his gospel. Nobody, in reality, nobody likes this God. And it's just by his grace that we can claim that we do. He reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconcile means to establish a close relationship between, to resettle or resolve, to bring oneself to accept, to restore to friendship or harmony. I mean, just think about those things for, for, a, bit, for a bit. As we discussed earlier, Jesus entered into his creation as a man and lived amongst us. He lived a sinless life, fully pleasing to the Father, always doing the Father's will. The Father even said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Yet the hands of sinful men was hung on a cross until he died. He was buried. And as a sign that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead. The first one to rise from the dead, never to return to death again. His blood washes us of all of our sins. Christ removes our sin and gives us his righteousness. When we stand before God, he will not see us in our, in our ugliness, our sin. He will see the beauty of his son, Jesus, and his righteousness. Verse 23 says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. 
Now, Paul is not saying here that you can lose your salvation. We do not teach that here. We do not believe that here. In fact, I don't believe the Bible says that. This letter was written to the saints in Colossae. Saint is not a uh, spiritual office to be attained. It refers to believers, believers everywhere. If you're a believer in Christ, then you are considered a saint. And this letter is written to the saints in Colossae. So these are believers, and God will preserve his people to the end. Including Colossians, he'll preserve us. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38 goes on. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 10:28 says, I give them, this is Jesus, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, in the midst of my madness, my despair, my guilt, I still believe that Jesus is God. And if you would come up to me and say, Ed, you know, do you believe Jesus is God? I'd say, of course I do. Do you believe that he is preeminent? Yes, of course. Do you still trust and believe his perfect work as a Savior? Yes, I do. I always will. My sin's not going to separate me from God. God will preserve us until the end. Paul here, I believe, is speaking of a past work, an accomplished work. He's speaking of the work of Jesus on the cross and, and, and when he brings people into, into his fold, that they are his, and they will remain steadfast. It says if you remain steadfast, yes, but you will remain steadfast. You stay at the absolute accomplishment of salvation in the past sufferings of Christ, and God will preserve us till the end. But there is a danger here. I have seen many people come into church, profess faith in Christ, I see them get heavily involved in church. Then after a while, you wonder, whatever happened to those people? Where did they go? And they're not going to another church. They completely abandon the faith. I don't know why, but there is the danger here that, you know, just going to church every Sunday is not a sure sign, but, but the true test of reality, the continuance, continuance, perseverance is the true test of the reality of your faith. If you're continuing on, and that is the reality of your faith. So how does Paul respond to Colossians' distraction away from the sufficiency of Jesus? Paul reminds us that Jesus is God. Jesus is preeminent. He is superior to all things. Reminds us of his perfect work as a Savior. I chose this passage because I wanted to exalt Christ as best I could. And I couldn't think of another passage it does this as completely as this one does. And I'm a stickler for context in sermons. And obviously the context here that Paul is writing to the Colossians about is false teachings. And if you're still awake, remember far back enough, my introduction was distractions. My distraction is my own sin. So I don't believe the false teaching is a problem here at Fountain of Life. Our teaching is not perfect. We're not infallible. Nobody's is, and we don't claim to be. 
But we do preach and proclaim the gospel every week, and I think we do that well, and I think we're solid there. And I don't think we're legalistic. Uh, I don't think we command people not to handle taste or touch as specified in the second chapter that Paul uh, refers to. Uh, We don't insist on asceticism or severity of the body. We don't forbid the celebration of birthdays or anniversaries or other events or celebrations. We certainly don't uh, advocate the worship of angels. The gospel in this passage is more than just protection against false teaching. We not only preach the gospel here, but we also preach the preaching of the gospel to ourselves. I recently came across a woman whose husband killed himself a few months ago. Uh, Her life is in shambles. Uh, Last Wednesday was a three-year anniversary of my wife's passing. While the circumstances of their deaths are different, I can still relate to her sense of loss. I can relate to her sadness and loneliness. Now, to make matters worse for her, her daughter tried to kill herself over Christmas. Because she wanted to spend Christmas with Daddy. She says her life has been destroyed. That is not true. That is a lie. A few weeks ago, we heard a sermon by uh, Brian Branderhorst, and he reminds us and points out that faith looks forward. We don't get stuck in our past. We don't get mired in the present. We look forward. We live with the end in sight. If you've known me for five seconds, you probably know that I'm a fan of Baltimore Orioles. It's to my shame that you probably discover that before you discover I'm a Christian. And the manager, Buck Walter is fond of saying, we don't live in that world. And that is usually in response to, you know, the, going through a tough time with the team and, you know, what are you doing? Well, we don't live in that world. We don't have a, a woe is me attitude. And what's true for the Orioles is even truer for the Christian. We do not have a woe is me attitude. We cannot live in that world. We have to look forward to the promises of God. And whether we eat or drink or whether we work or even when we mourn, whatever we do, we do all the glory of God. See, the reminders in this passage will help us combat the distractions of false teachings. The reminders in this passage will help us combat the distractions of our sins and will help us climb out of the depths and from underneath the weight of our guilt. The reminders of this passage will lift us up and sustain us when life comes crashing down and crushes us. It is what enabled Horatio Spafford, who after the death of his son, his financial ruin after the great Chicago fire, the loss of four daughters on a sunken vessel in the Atlantic to pen the words, it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, we are beloved by the creator of the universe, the king of the universe. We are his child, his heir. We are the promises of God set before us. He promised to make all things new and right again, no more sin. He promised to wipe away every tear, no more death, no more disappointment, no more loss. 
He has promised us eternal life and the fullness of joy, eternity with him. God has given us his best. God has given himself to us. There's nothing more precious, more valuable, more beautiful than God. If you've not received Jesus' salvation, I, I just want to know what's stopping you. Where are you going to go? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Turn to him, cry out to him, believe in him, trust in him. Be reconciled to God. Receive the truths that you've heard here today. May today the day of your salvation. For the rest of us, I encourage you to remain steadfast at all times. Remember who you are in Christ. You are his child, his heir. Beloved by him, the creator and preeminent king of the universe. Be satisfied in him. Do not forget his gospel. Let us not be distracted. Let us be awestruck because Jesus is God. Be awestruck because he is king. Be awestruck because he is our savior. He is preeminent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. I hope that I was able to bring glory and honor to you and to your son, Jesus. Thank you for this powerful passage that exalts your son. I hope that that was accomplished this morning. Thank you for our reconciliation, our redemption. When we get distracted and we sin against you, may we remember who we are in you, united to your son, Jesus. May we be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Fill us with your spirit. May we see the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ and leave here to share his truth, scattering to spread the gospel to your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.